Wait, are you gaming on a Chromebook? Yeah, it's got a high-res 120 hertz display, plus this killer RGB keyboard. And I can access thousands of games anytime, anywhere. Stop playing. What? Get out of here. Huh? Yeah, I want you to stop playing and get out of here so I can game on that Chromebook. Got it. Discover the ultimate cloud gaming machine, a new kind of Chromebook. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. The grade cricketer is a Twitter stream. It's about playing cricket at the grade level. It's a tough, mean, dirty, dirty business being a grade cricketer. A lot of cricketers, you know, that's all they know. They've mm. done it since they're 10 and they have a deep-seated fear of change. But the grade cricket is all about being the most alpha version of yourself as possible at all costs and at all times. I don't bat or bowl. I just feel the gully, count the number of dot balls in a row, sledge 15 yards, make me feel better about myself. Thanks, Thanks champ. champ. Oh, no, you called me champ. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Grey Cricketer Podcast. On today's show, the summer officially starts on Thursday with the first test at the Gabba. What do we make of the squad? How many names do we know from Pakistan? And what can we expect from the summer ahead? James Pattinson won't be there. He's banned from the first test, so we'll discuss how nice it is to have another guy banned from playing cricket for Australia again. There's India, Bangladesh, New Zealand, England, Katy Perry at the Women's World Cup and everything in between. By the way... Brian Lara is on the show, as is Bob Murphy. And of course, hashtag AskTDC. None of this, lads, possible without our very good friends, Budgie Smuggler. We've spoken in the past about how well they've supported us. We want, them, we want you guys out there, guys and girls, to, uh, to support Budgie Smuggler as they have us. It's budgiesmuggler.com. More of them later in today's show, obviously. My name is Ian Higgins, and I'm joined by Dave Edwards to my left and Sam Perry to my right. And boys, all I want to know is how pumped are you that the summer is here, the cricket is back? As of Thursday. G'day, he goes mildly. Okay. Mildly so. Yeah. The main conversation has been about the batting group, the contention around selection, the selections mm. of Burns and Bancroft. Yeah. Well, we increasingly speak in the language of the internet, don't we? And like to me, Burns and Bancroft selection, it's, it's the partridge shrug. You know, yeah. I can't begrudge them. They're the least worst. You know, of the group, of a group that was described to me by someone close to the camp as underwhelming. Yeah. With the exception of Smith. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> uh, people losing their minds about it. What are you meant to do? No one else scores runs. They're just, you know, they're there. Yeah. Get them oh, in. And what are you meant to do when there's only two selectors? Like, the, even the selectors are, are fucking struggling. There's, only, there's meant to be three of them. So how are we meant to get good selections when there's only two blokes mm. available? Hones mm. and Langer. Mm. Just getting in a room. Who are we going to pick? Well, of course yeah. you're going to pick Bancroft because he's got a bit about him, doesn't he? Yeah. Bancroft has like a brand story. You know, that's why I think he kind of edged ahead of the other mm. contenders. Harris, okay, runs, sure. Averages 58 in first-class cricket, sure. Mm-hmm. No brand story, though. Well, yeah, yeah. The if, if, you got recent a, runs. if you got a room full of people in market research terms and yes. you, you said you put up this image of Harris and I put up an image of Bancroft and the brand awareness. Who's Harris? I don't know who Harris. What's a Michael Nisa? Yeah. Is that even how you say Nisa? And can we say, we've been, Marcus Harris is funny. 
by the way. This isn't known, is it? We interviewed him a few months ago. Yeah, he had a broadcast capacity. Yeah. Funny. Yeah, he revealed the personality, or aside to him anyway, of like when he said the thing about the circuit in Perth last year yeah. against India. We needed more of that yeah. for him to be selected. So right. I think a partridge shrug is a great way to, one, speak in, in, in internet terms and also describe that because like this sort of fits into the whole summer of just like, what is this summer? It's just like, ah, just get out of the way until the next mm. big one comes along. The next <laughs> series is always the most important. Mm. Mm. Are they going to play four bowlers? <laughs> Yeah, anyway, uh, I mean, I, I think one person who's fly, flying under the radar and won't by the end of the summer is Manus. I mean, like, this mm-hmm. this is the summer of Manus. Summer of Manus. Not Manus. Oh, yeah. Uh, that was last summer. Medivac. Yeah. Um, but um, <laughs> this is the summer of Manus. You know, we need somebody to join Smith, mm-hmm. hopefully Warner, mm-hmm. as a run scorer. He's the one most primed to do it. Uh, you know, he's going to Brisbane. Yeah. Home deck. Yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, I can see the sun glistening off him. I can see the, the Brisbane kind of, mm. you know, radiance and Manus Labuschagne. See, there's a story. We need something to talk about. Manus you know? is the story. It's got to be it, I mean, it is Smith's summer, cause, but that's, that's right, that, that that's will right. wash over us by, you know, by the end when we're mm. playing our ninth mm. game in Canberra or whatever. Yeah. But, like, Manus is the story here because, like, um, there was this, there was when he was bowling to Finch. Finch hit 185 in that in one of the Marsh Cup games, and Marnus was bowling to him, and he did the thing which really upset Finch. And then like when we were talking to him in Channel Seven capacity, okay. they were like, Marnus has got the worst chat, yeah. and the, and so there's all this stuff about his you know religious upbringing, you know all that kind of stuff. And he's just there's a story about Marnus. This is a summer of Marnus, and he's going to secure his spot at three. It could end Kawaja's career as well. Yeah, and just like for, for the erasing erasure of all like. Um I don't know any suggestions otherwise. Like, we're, like I, I've turned the tables on Manus. You know, we gave it to him last summer. Gave mm-hmm. it to him for the Isaiah quote on the bat, mm-hmm. um, and just the general notion of picking someone to bat three for Australian bowl leg spin, yep. uh, which would be like the, the most prized thing you could ever do in yeah. cricket. Who averaged average, like twenty five in like shield cricket? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like that. And I've turned around completely. Hundred percent. That fifty odd at Lords, completely underrated. Mm-hmm. Getting littered hard by it, Joffre after Smith had been knocked out. Mm. And then, uh, you know, going on to save that game for the country. That, that was one of the greatest innings ever. So and what are we expecting from, from Marnus? Bulk runs. Bulk runs. I just need runs. I need hundreds. I need montages. I need, uh, you know, f- funny little stories about him. These are the things that I need. This is the thing See, Australia needs. I, I think in the absence of a Mitch Marsh in your squad, I think that, like, Marnus is the guy who's got a bit about him. You know, Australia needs at least one person in every squad who's got a bit about him. Marnus is the guy. And we won't define what that bit means. doesn't mean anything. Mm-hmm. It means everything, but, though. <laughs> okay um well there's been there's been some talk leading up into the test match about you know will lion play he's got a very bad record against um against uh, pakistani averages like 58 or something what? with the ball yeah um and they're going to say well they, they might play four quicks at the gabba they're just going to bounce again out. it's they're a narrative that we Pakistan. love to have it's the start of the summer this is the kind of storyline we want to be making people feel safe about australian cricket and that we are aggressive and masculine we can bump out opposition teams uh within a day yeah that, and that's the narrative that mm-hmm. we need as a, as a society mm-hmm. right now we don't need nathan Lyon, greatest off spinner of all time mm. we might not even need him mm. to dominate pakistan mm. and that makes us feel very good would you play four quicks do you want the four quicks? i'd always play a five if i could <laughs> I'd play as many quicks as I could. Yeah, if possible. Yeah, Lava Shane's on time. There you go. There's, Maybe there's this, spin. this is a good thing because obviously... But off-spinners in Australian cricket, they've never been respected. I mean, he could do he yeah. could do anything. I mean, Nathan Lyon it might end up taking the most wickets of all time, mm. of anyone, mm. but he still bowls these ones, doesn't mm. he? <laughs> he might have a, you know, Order of Australia, whatever he's got, you know, mm. all the accolades he's achieved, and rightfully so, he still bowls these ones. Mm. We might not pick him in the first test because he bowls these ones. Mm. Dave is gesticulating, twisting a doorknob as he's doing that. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, 
maybe it's a good sign for Australian cricket that we can just have this conversation. I didn't realise this conversation was happening, uh, that there was a discussion about whether Lyon would play or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, like the entire bowling like approach with Australian cricket is... I like, had have, his first on the team sheet. Have like uh, one guy, one off spinner at the other end who can bowl containing uh, spin while the quicks rest, while these thoroughbreds come and mm. destroy the rest of the opposition. Mm. They're saying that maybe we get rid of line for the first test, cook the bowlers with, uh, you know, like running in for their third and fourth spells in a hot Brisbane. Cook them. Because... Because let's just play four fucking quicks. Yeah, let's, yeah. Get, let's get them. Let's right. bounce Maybe them. it's a good sign for Australian cricket that we can just have that conversation. Of course, line will play. Um, okay, the Pakistan squad. Does anyone know anything about Pakistan? No, the, the and squad, that's good. Yeah. Squad, anything about them? I don't know anything about Pakistan, but that's... Do you want to? No, I don't. Look, Pakistan mm. is hype, you know? And yep. I don't want to know anything about them. Mm-hmm. And anyone who says they do know anything about them is a bald-faced liar, bald-faced and I've always liar. said that. I yeah. mean, like, Pakistan is like Bitcoin, for yeah. me, yes. I mean they're they're a decentralized digital currency. Yes, yep. they're also a cricket team. Yeah. But you know, today <laughs> they might be trading at you know twenty thousand AUD. Yeah, you know tomorrow they might be at four K. Who knows? You might yeah. have lost millions of dollars on them. Mm. Um, you know they're a volatile investment. Sometimes feels a little bit fucking illegal. Let's be honest. <laughs> but it's really fun to talk about at barbecues. Mm. <laughs> Pez, what do you know about Pakistan? Well. What, yeah, well, nothing, and that's good. Uh, mm-hmm. So I like their bowling lineup. Um, you know, Muhammad Abbas, Imran Khan, yep. uh, Shaheen Afridi, Nazim yep. Shah, the 16 year olds, mm-hmm. 19 year olds. Uh, you know, they could do damage against a batting group that, apart from Smith, can't bat, really mm. haven't got any runs for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, and, and yet I still have this, like, uh, arrested development problem of, like, yep imagining that we're just going to have lazy, hazy afternoons of Australian hundreds against faceless opposition. Mm-hmm. Uh, when in reality, we're only an innings or two away from a fucking <laughs> crisis again. It's going to be Hobart all over again, and oh, we're going to yes. see Matthew Renshaw leaving balls and day-nighters at Adelaide, yeah. uh, and we're clapping it because no one else can bat in the country. Yeah. Uh, so we're, not, we're, not, we're not far away from another crisis. So what you're referring to there is you're referring to 2015, 16, 16 against yeah. South Africa, when like we were thinking, oh, we'll just knock over South Africa, and yeah. they just decimated us, and it, it, they debuted mm. six blokes the next test match. Yeah, well, we didn't know who Rabada was. All of a sudden, he was, you know, yeah. Courtney Walsh's second yeah. uh, straight away. That's, so yeah. Yeah. it's good happen. That is the exciting thing about Pakistan. We don't know what is going to happen. And mm. something kind of exhilarating and, dare I say, titillating yeah. about there being so many teenage quicks, yep. you know, of whom their age is perhaps under a, some kind of cloud. Sure. I'm not quite sure if he's 16. He looks 38 mm. to yeah. me. Yeah. Mm. Um, but that's really exciting, isn't it? The, it's really the, in that grey area. I was, looking, I was watching the Australia A-Pakistan game and just like bowls, they got a bit of spunk about them. Imran Khan, the same shards, just a certain je ne sais quoi of just energy, mm. effervescence, youth mm. in the eyes as much as anything, and mm. the hips. Mm. And um, it's the opposite of Australian cricket. I mean, we know too much about Australian cricket. No, too much. Yeah. I mean, Australia, just to continue the analogy, I mean, mm-hmm. Australian cricket is like BHP. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm not going anywhere with this. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, you put $30 in Australian cricket in 1960 and now it's mm. worth, you know, $600 million. Yeah. It's a solid investment. So in the same shah is like a, is a, is a, is a low-lying investment where, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> I don't know where I'm going there. <laughs> you, you have small investment but it's, in the no, same Australia, okay, let's, let's just, okay, Australian cricket is like BHP and that they're trying to have a new culture. Maybe they're investing in uh, renewable energy. Australian cricket's trying to invest in a new culture and okay. identity. Yeah. But at the end of the day, but they're still fucking BHP. Coal. Keep yeah. jobs in coal. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Pakistan is Bitcoin. Can yeah. be anything. Yeah. Can be anything. Well, uh, there was news uh, uh, earlier this week or maybe last week that Pakistan are going to play their first home test in about 10 years nice. against Sri Lanka. Later mm. in the years, that's something to maybe maybe that might distract them a little bit as well in terms of like they must be so looking forward to that to a home test match in Pakistan. 
for the first time in 10 years that like this series is just like, let's just get through it. There's a great <laughs> article. It's like, me. you know, I'm just looking forward to like not having to travel for work. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but also like the next series is the most important for every team. Yeah. So like the home series for them might be the, might be the, um, the absolutely most important thing. Smith, uh, hang on, uh, here goes. Smith mm. said yesterday though, uh, amid, you know, the potential that Pakistan could just destroy the entirety of the Australian batting line of barring Smith. Of course, Smith will never be destroyed. No. Uh, but Smith came out yesterday and just kind of like really dead-eyed uh, responding to like conversations about Pakistan quicks and stuff. Like it was mm. very complimentary. Muhammad Abbas, like he, oh, he stands the ball up, he'll make it move and stuff. Shah looks really quick, but then he just said, dead-eyed, Shah looks quick, but you know, he's so young. Let's see what happens when he has to come back for a third or fourth spell. And I'm just thinking, is there anything... Shots fired. But, well, is there anything more chilling though than <laughs> Steve Smith saying that? Just like, just looking at Jerno dead in the eyes like yeah he'll make that happen can you say the exact same thing about Joffre Archer mm. oh, Justin Langer said that mm. is Shah um, under the age is he under the age brackets here the same stuff as age group cricket and grade cricket where he can only bowl four over spells yes. yeah yeah. and, and his dad will be at the ground with a water bowl at fine leg <laughs> running it out to him and getting him throw downs between innings and he has to wear a helmet when he bowls <laughs> uh, well that's a deep dive analysis of the Pakistan squad um Okay, well, another story this week is um, Pekovsky was going to be selected for Australia, most likely. Well, he was, in, he was in contention. He contacted the selectors and said, don't select me. Mm. Now, that's three guys, coincidentally, off from Victoria, Pekovsky, um, Madison, and Maxwell. All three guys who are on the cusp of playing for Australia yeah. and all said, no, they're going to take a break, all for mental health reasons. Mm. So I wonder, like, maybe I haven't looked out for it um, as much as I should have been, but I don't know how much of a conversation has actually been started by mental health uh, uh, sorry, started about mental health on the back of this. Have, have I just missed that, or is this a? Well, first of all, it's a worrying trend, isn't it? But yeah. Oh yeah. Well, uh, a lot of the like the senior journo's covered it over the weekend. Some really good pieces from mm-hmm. Malcolm Knox, Greg Baum, Gideon Hay, mm-hmm. of course, a couple of others there as well. And the the central point those guys made, I, as far as I could deduce, was like, well, it's just being reported now so yeah it's a trend Mm -hmm. but by the same token there's lots of stories dotted through cricket history of players who um felt mental strain maybe there's a different language around it as well like Mm -hmm. Gideon mentions Don Bradman he mentions Ken Barrington um you know there's there's a famous book from David Frith for the series of you know cricketers who have committed suicide like you know it's a and and all of them go on to really beautifully sort of explain the unique brutality that cricket inflicts on (laughs) the Mm -hmm. psyche and Mm -hmm. and this is the thing that you know like this is where I think this is interesting it's interesting in many ways obviously but like I, I think there's a real argument to be made that like without proper cultural and moral leadership in the game that like a you know, especially around behaviour and culture, like the, the game can genuinely be bad for your mental health. Hmm. Like it, it actually can. And like we satirise this, you know, and, and we get confused about it and we philosophise about it and we hmm. make jokes about it. But like quite clearly, this is the third week in a row we're talking about players who are like on the cusp of playing for Australia mm-hmm. going, nah, this, this, is, this is not good. This is bad for my health mm-hmm. yeah. to do this. Mm-hmm. And, and being able to show that kind yeah. of softness, if you will, because you have to be hard in cricket yep. at all times. You have to have a hard body hard chat, work mm-hmm. hard, everything mm-hmm. is about being hard mm-hmm. and to publicly accept that, you know, I'm going through something and it's probably best that I bow out here. Mm. That's that's pretty huge. Yeah. Um, it is jarring though to mm. see cricketers, you know, admit mental fragility when it's all about being as alpha as you can at all times and all costs. Yeah. yeah. It's probably uncouth to um, in any way speculate, uh, you know, what, what's what's going on with, you know, Madison, Maxwell and Pukowski. But like just in terms of cricket specifically, because every, every professional athlete that you hear talk about or there was always, always nerves before a game or that sort of stuff. But like cricket has a level of like it 
it thrives so much on the anxiety of like not yep. only waiting to play, so waiting to bat, waiting for mm. the field to change. Wait, mm. like it's, it's this constant game of fucking waiting for the thing to happen. And the worst case scenario is constantly in your head. Mm. So like Gideon wrote about this beautifully. He said, let's face it. No team game is more fickle and random as cricket. Isolates individual performance so unsparingly, punishes error more totally, and involves such gratuitous moral judgment. The great work ethic, the courageous performance, the lazy shot, the soft dismissal, the loose ball, etc. No game takes longer, involves more waiting, more contemplation, more bluff, the need to be positive and confident when the cues are otherwise, to handle personal disappointment in proximity to others' success. Mm-hmm. And this is these are guys now who are doing this in a professional era, relentless. Mm-hmm. Relentlessly, game never stops. Never no stops. time away from it. Um, and yeah, like no one, I think, has come out and said, like, ha- has said that there's a softness to this publicly. You know that the conversation's happening in bars and that it's in people's heads because we're conditioned to think that way, like that hardness thing. And I just kind of wanted to say, like, the, the, the word soft is like a really loaded term, like horrendously mm. so, associated with weakness. But like, it's a paradox because I reckon modern players, right? Like, if soft means to like being prepared to. Recognise and confront your own vulnerability uh, and the uniquely brutal impact of cricket on your psyche mm. uh, and then taking steps to like literally remove yourself from your profession mm. to look after your health. Well, that's like probably strong, isn't it? And, you know, conversely, I'll finish in a sec. Conversely, like how many older players are regarded as hard and may struggle like later on in their life mm-hmm. with a certain hardness or steeliness that precludes them from being healthy in other areas of their mm. life. I don't know the answer to that, mm. but I suspect it's the case. I think it's like also with the with the expansion of the game, and there's, there's never an off-season for these like top-level mm. cricketers. They're playing endlessly, year-round. And like that level of scrutiny where like the amateur level, where you can just like play on the weekends, sometimes you can still get away with it by blowing up some steam on a Friday night, for mm. instance, or a Saturday mm. night. But like... These or like guys, a normal job where you get four weeks of annual leave per year yeah, and you just go yeah, off to Bali and yeah. kind of just refresh and revitalise yeah. yourself. The relentlessness of cricket for these guys just must be such where it's just like, no, I literally need to step back and take time away from this. I'm, it's probably also prudent to say that we obviously broadcast to a significant amount of young men out there. Yeah. And if this is happening in the professional game, it's definitely happening in out there in society. Um, so, you know, I, I suppose... It's, it's like the game, but it's the, ga- like it's the nature of the game. Like literally the way cricket is played like the, the rules of the game breeds this yeah. fucking like bizarre stoicism and steeliness in order to cope like, it really does like, that's why people like, like Justin Langer and so turn to muscular Christianity true. Victorian true. ethics and ideals like mm. sledging to counter that sledging for example like literally abusing people on the field yeah. it's like an evolutionary mm. development of cricket because mm-hmm. we know how taxing you know we only do it because we know how hard it is to receive it mm-hmm. right cricket's such a strain mentally mm-hmm. so if you can like be abused it's even more taxing mentally and then you know you'll get out and you'll fail so well, it's like an evolutionary thing like it, the, the game breeds it like you know is the game so the game right for 2019 yeah. well the cancel yeah. culture cancel cricket culture. yeah cricket's cancelled <laughs> they found no but what i'm saying like this is why cricket australia needs to have like it, it needs to be a lateral thinking to the leadership like there needs to be some you know some leadership around the way you manage people's i don't know what it is but mm. like the way you manage mentality in mm. the face of a game that's pretty fucking medieval mm. something outside mm. just releasing a, a statement maybe mm. just a kind of yeah. a bold I statement think they're doing stuff like, they're, they're definitely doing stuff but it's like you know the, the language and literacy around mental health is so good now from players we're all learning more about mental health and players are going fuck oh, they're just waking up going shit th- this game makes me feel bad. It's pretty interesting because <laughs> um, obviously Steve Waugh called it mental dis- disintegration and we celebrated that, mm. you know, mm. and it's like, yeah. Some did. Some did it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. well to that end, yeah. James Pattinson's been suspended. <laughs> 
The exact details of Patton's offence in the MCG last week has not been revealed, but he was found guilty of a level two breach of Article 2.1.3, which relates to personal abuse of a player. In a statement, mm. CA said Pattinson apologised immediately and unreservedly to the opponent and the umpires and did not contest the charge. Um, also plays for Victoria. This happened for Victoria. Um, that's, I find that interesting. <laughs> he, he said so. Yeah, I mean, it's probably like, fuck. Mate, it's not, it's, not, <laughs> it's not his go. Yeah. He'd be the first to put his hand up and say, I did wrong. Yeah. Uh, it's completely out of character. He's a great bloke. Yeah. These would be all the things that people would be saying about him. Yeah. Um, all of that is in inverted commas. I'm not saying that. Yeah. I'm sure he's lovely. Yeah. But um, it doesn't stop me speculating privately mm. about what those words are so, that were said. Like, you see some, you see the comments and stuff and, and the talk around, and it's just like, oh, you hear, you hear some bad stuff on the field out there, like in the, in the, in the amateur level all the time. Mm. That's definitely true. Definitely heard some really stupid, dumb stuff out mm. there. I actually never heard anything absolutely horrific where I thought it was prudent to report <laughs> it to like even like the umpire of the panel or you just put like your that. batting and you just put your bat down and you walk up to the umpire and say mate he's he's out of place here yeah I, I, that, that's not that, on that never happened I did as I say I heard some bad stuff but like never to like to I don't know to the, to the degree that we think that what Pattinson has said here and I wonder if it like plays into this thing of like these guys are so competitive and like they have this thing in them where they'll, they'll do anything to win on the field in a physical sense. And then obviously cricket is such a verbal mental game. They're like, they'll say, well, I will say anything to win as well. Do you reckon that's, mm. is that, is that part of cricket now? Well, we come, we've come or from, you know, this zero sum approach to Australian cricket. And now we've got this sensitive approach and we're kind of, you know, that's kind of at odds really at, at, with what Australian cricket has been all about for so long. Yeah. So we're going through a bit of a teething process. It seems. Yeah. Well, just like, you know, we live in a capitalist society, right? You know, it's like survival. God damn, we do. God damn right we do, mm. you know? Build that capital. America. Mm. <laughs> Can't wait for the big bash to start. Sledging works, you know? Mm. I'm not saying that Outcome's what Pattinson driven. said necessarily works, but, like, there's a reason that it exists. Yeah. The thing is, this is why leadership is so important, though. You just need older people around who go, like, listen, this is on, this isn't. Here's not the, not the line. The line is too, um, sort of like, a, it's too simple a concept, mm. you know? And then you've got guys who get red mist, you know, and yeah. go for it or whatever. I think it's I think it's heartening that Pattinson does appear to apologise. Did you see away. that um Justin Justin I think one of the things that Justin Lang has brought in is a values meeting at the start of every series. Yeah. Um, I think Steve Smith had to actually stand up in front of everyone and apologise for the mm. dissent he showed after mm. getting out bullshit decision mm. yeah. in the shield match. But he had to get up there and apologise for that. Yeah. Values meeting. Interesting. <laughs> What do you that, think about a values meeting? I'd like that. And Australian cricket needs that yeah. massively. Mm. We've obviously we've obviously ripped Justin Langer mm. for a few different things over the yeah. last year or whatever. And yeah. rightfully yeah. so. But I reckon I reckon that's good. I reckon that's, so. I reckon that's good. Because Australian cricket, like these these things still exist, obviously. And if it's mm. like it's happening still all through like every level of cricket in Australia, like this this doesn't happen in the UK. Like club cricket yeah. in the UK, you don't hear the things that you do on the field that you do here. It just doesn't happen. It's an Australian thing. Yeah. And it's like, it, it is fucking ridiculous. It mm. still happens. But, but as we know, it sucks when you're getting sledged. It yeah. sucks and it works. The, the, There's the, a couple of sociopaths out there that like getting sledged though. Yeah. There's a couple you, of examples of those of, of international cricketers that yeah. actually like it he when they sledge. It. I think Brian Lara might Co have been one Coldy was Coley's one. Yeah. And you yeah. don't want to sledge him. Don't you know, sledge whispers him. get around he actually likes this. Yeah. <laughs> Is that evidence of like a personality Kev, disorder? Kevin Peterson was another one actually thinking about Warren saying like, oh, we learnt pretty quickly that like you don't sledge Peterson. I like, like it. He likes it's it. It's like yeah. S&M. Yeah. Do you remember, remember Warren? Who was it? Was it Collingwood sledging Warren? 
Mm. And then Warm was like, you're making, you're making me concentrate more. Yeah. yeah. How can you concentrate more because you're being sledged? <laughs> doesn't make uh, any sense. Okay. No, uh, presuming Warm's concentrating at 100%. Well, at yeah, time. it's a good point. Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. Um, stuff. All right. Well, uh, New Zealand and England, the first test is on Thursday. Sam Curran is set to play ahead of Chris Works, apparently, for England. Josh Butler hit his first... First class 100 and over year, which was against India. Um, he hit that uh, against New Zealand Day the other day. Lockie Ferguson is part of the 15-man New Zealand squad uh, and is in line for a test debut. You guys came for that, but Lockie Ferguson, long sleeves, the, the wheels again. Have sure. that conversation. Yeah. Can you bowl in black wheels? wheels? Yep. <laughs> in, can. in test matches? I think. I hope so. Yeah. Hmm. I'm bored with that. Okay. Well, I'm surprised that there hasn't been like a bigger influx of coloured wheels in test cricket. I mean, everyone's a brand at the moment. Well, now that numbers are in, mm. maybe that's the maybe that's the gateway. Mm. It's the catalyst oh, we need to change. Is, yeah. <laughs> you see that just on England. Um, did you see that Ben Stokes has a book out and he was talking about his um, the Headingley Test and he basically said that Dave Warner wouldn't shut up for the entire time he was out there and that's what spurred him on to win. Um, or to, to win the yeah, game for England. Has he Headingley. already got a book out about Headingley? Yeah. yeah. No, he's got a book out. It's Brand called, story. It's called On Fire or something. Okay. Mm. So he's obviously leveraging the heroics of the World Cup and Headingley. Yeah. And his hair. And, um, but fuck me, David Warner's got a lot to answer for. Yeah. <laughs> Scored 95 in the Ashes, mm, averaged yeah. about nine. Yeah. Mm. Dropped the catch. Dropped the catch. Fucking lost Headingley for us, lost the series for us. Mm. He'll hit a ton though at Gabba on day one. Oh, he'll smash him. Be good so to see Davey back to the Toyota yeah. jump. It's good to see him again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dominic Simley, uh, Sibley hit 100 as well as Zach Crawley batting at 2-3 and three in a warm-up game the other week against New Zealand uh, Dom Simley actually played great cricket in Perth oh, yeah. so we obviously need to get him on the show immediately mm. um, Pez, you're looking forward to uh, Rory Burns and Joe Burns opening the batting on the same day in different continents <laughs> looking forward to that <laughs> in the test you. match that's good that's good oh yeah well it was um, yeah, beautifully pointed out on Twitter by uh, press pack it was this will be the first time that uh, two Burnses have opened the batting that's just what I'm here for so um, <laughs> I have to say um, you know for those who are wondering no reply from the ECB yet on uh, the request for Johnny Bairstow on our 100th show uh, we've never really done this before but if anyone wants to help amplify this Bairstow campaign um, by tweeting the ECB uh, or whomever makes those calls uh, that'd be great cheers uh, so India and Bangladesh uh, are part of that test series as well. Bangladesh got 150 and 213 versus India's six for 493. Uh, the biggest takeaway from that wasn't Agarwal's 200 opening the batting. It was Coley's second ball duck. Uh, for all Steve Smith fans out there. Shami took seven wickets in the match. He was pick of the bowlers. Uh, lots of chat at the moment, actually, about India having the best attack in the world. Coley was talking about that beforehand. That's, it's heavy chat in India that India has the best bowlers in the world. Is that right? Are they right? Mm-hmm. Did pretty well out here. Probably it's hard. It's hard to say. Like probably the next big test series for Australia is India coming here next summer, and so India I, coming here. I believe so. I think they're coming here next summer. Really? Yeah. So every two years they're going to come out here. Is that right? It's about right, isn't it? You know, they every couple of years uh, yeah. they come here, England come here, whatever. Those three play so. each other and get all the money. But um, yeah, but every, you know them coming here last year, you, you could say, well, they yeah dominated us last year, but everything last year was an asterisk. Everything in mm. life, yeah. Between, you know, from Warner and Smith's band as an outsider. Post cricket. Smith, yeah. 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 Well, that's yeah. still PSB. I was trying to do a BCAD thing, but it's just the same acronym. Yeah. Uh, you'd expect <laughs> India to destroy a Shakibless <laughs> Bangladesh at home, wouldn't you? Yes. We just need an Agarwal. We need someone outside Smith to score runs, and that's why Alabashan needs to hit 243. Mm. They fucking love double hundreds over in India, yeah. don't they? Voracious. And different blokes get the double hundreds too, yeah. not just the same bloke. Yeah, yeah, they bring blokes in, they average mid 40 straight away. Yeah. We don't have that. Yeah, we don't have it. I want it. I don't have it. Yeah. Well, um, just before we get Brian Lara and Bob Murphy on the phones, 
plural. Separate interviews, not at the same time. Although that would be funny listening to Bob Murphy talk to Brian Lara. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to take this time to... So we had our first live show of the tour, boys, on Thursday. Use this moment to, um, mm-hmm. to speak about that. Princess Theatre on Thursday night. Um, 7.30, Princess Theatre. Tickets are still available. Last few tickets are remaining. It's probably going to sell out in the next... Well, what day is it? Say Monday, so before Thursday. So jump online if you want to come along, celebrate mm-hmm. the, the, the return of the cricket, mm-hmm. the cricketing summer. Uh, by coming to see TJC with Jason Gillespie. And it's Chatham House Rules. All right, so do come along then in Brisbane on Thursday night. It'd be fantastic to see everyone there to kick off the summer and the tour Adelaide the week after that, but we'll get to that next week. Um, Pez, Katy Perry is going to be uh, performing at the Women's World Cup final at the MCG. Mm. I think this is good. This is amazing. Like, about a, a couple of years ago, like, Belinda Clark was scoring runs on, like, suburban outposts that you barely saw. And in like six months' time or whatever it is, Katy Perry is going to be performing, and there's going to be probably a hundred thousand people uh, at yeah. uh, like a women's cricket final. Yeah, that's um, I don't know. I feel like that's worthy of of like of, of calling out. That's pretty handy. And please stop tweeting me people that she's got the same last name as me and Elise Perry does as well. No, that's it's true. Already, it's already a problem. Yeah, googling myself. So you're the third most successful Perry in cricket. I just type in Perry cricket now. I've got Katy Perry. Now. <laughs> Deal with. You're on third page now. Mm. Onto the third page of Google. Barely. Roland Perry's Don Bradman's biographer. <laughs> All right, Brian Lara coming up. Boys, Elise Perry's return for a second time uh, onto the grade cricketer. Elise, uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison has thrown his support behind former cricketer Ash Barty several times recently and tweeted about her in, I think, two of his last seven tweets. Yet, And, and correct me if I'm wrong, he hasn't publicly congratulated you for your seven for 22, um, which has almost surely sealed the ashes. So you obviously are devastated by this brazen oversight. Oh, no, we FaceTimed the other night, so... Um, <laughs> what's, his te- what's his technique like on FaceTime? Like, too close to the camera? He's, he's a bit like my dad, actually. Like, the longer it goes on, the more, like, his face that just kind of disappears off the screen. He doesn't, doesn't realise that he's actually holding yeah. the camera and I can't see it if it's not pointed at him. But. At, at what point in the conversation did he start speaking in tongues? <laughs> <laughs> Just after we uh, we spoke pig Latin that one. Lads, some numbers here. Uh, standing at 187 centimetres and with a playing weight of 81 kilos, this man played 312 games for the Western Bulldogs in the AFL, kicking 183 goals, was twice All-Australian, named captain in 2015. He described himself as an underrated husband, solid dad, former flanker, author of Leather, Soul, and appears on Fairfax SEN and Fox Footy. Uh, he's alluded to playing cricket at the amateur level, though a deep dive into my cricket reveals no entry for players under the name Bob nor Robert Murphy. Uh, some have called this interview a cynical ploy to take a slice of that rich, rich AFL media cycle, um, but really we couldn't pass up the opportunity to speak with an elite rebounding mid-defender with uh, silky skills, a big heart and poetry chops. Bob, uh, welcome to The Great Cricketer. Hi guys, how are you? Great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bob, just, I mean, kick us off, what, what's your relationship to club cricket? Can you describe yourself as a cricketer? Uh, I'll describe myself as, it's kind of, you know, sometimes the, the bullet points tell you everything. So if I just gave you, so I'm a, a leg spinner and and a, and a bit of a flashy batsman that refused to sort of dig in. Mm. And that kind of tells you everything you need to know about my entire psyche, I must say. Right. Um, 
I played I played down in Warrigal, um, played juniors, and then of course graduated to juniors in the morning, C grade in the afternoon, and and sort of played an intense sort of three years of cricket. Loved it, and uh, and then got picked up by the AFL, and I've only ever played I played two charity games since. And, um, that's kind of where where it sort of sits. Um, I, I loved playing, but wait, waiting to bat, I got to say, was, um, was one of the most torturous experiences of my life, and I really never wish to do it again. Is there any kind of anxiety that in, in AFL? I mean, obviously, before going out to a game, there'd be a level of apprehension. But does anything come close to you know in AFL or in football in general? You know, yeah, compared to batting. Well, I, I think uh, I think as you so kindly. Um, I mentioned in the, the info that 312 games, and you know, which is quite a lot of football. But I'm, kind, I think I'm actually more proud of the fact that I had to wait to play 312 times. The, the actual playing wasn't that hard. The, the, the four hours before a game were, for mm. me, just a um, quite a gut-churning experience. But nothing like football is is one thing, but cricket takes takes. You said, is there any anxiety? Cricket is all of the anxieties, mm. and the the, the, the waiting to, to bat, particularly for me, was quite a quite a traumatic experience that I've tried to suppress as best as I can until today in this very podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, Bob, just just on that note, we were talking earlier in the first segment about um, sort of the mental health of the three Victorian guys, specifically Maddinson, Maxwell, and Bukowski, all all taking yep. time away from. Um, from cricket due to mental health and, and, and that level of anxiety in many ways that cricket sort of exacerbates. I mean, how available uh, was help for you as a former professional athlete, you know, for, for, for this sort of thing, if at all? Um, there was, there was, but it's... Um, the, th- the thing about, um, I've found anyway, the thing about pro- uh, professional um, athletes is there's a there's a lot of loneliness. As much as well, um, you know, part part of teams and clubs and big supporter bases and all that. A lot of the um, a lot of the anxieties and the stresses you you, you really do alone in your own in your own thoughts. Um, but I, I, must, I must admit, like cr- cricket to me um, seems probably as as vulnerable to this kind of thing as any sport that I can think of because. Um, I don't want to be disrespectful, but I sort of view cricket. It's like it's it's just a team sport. Like it it's just it's just there, but it's really it's mm. individual, mm. statistical, statistically based. And yeah. when those guys get to the pointy end, like yeah, state teams, um, but particularly national team, like the focus on so few must be kind of must be really really intense. And mm. I, I think the difference between my world and uh, as a footballer and and the cricket thing is that um, I, I think the average punter has much more conviction in their opinions of a cricketer's skills and mental application. The the, the amateur uh, cricketer will have really strong opinions on Marcus Harrison's um, uh, offside. Mm. Um, the way he holds the blade, or these sort of things. Whereas football is a bit do. more general. It's a bit more general. I think there's a lot more amateur uh, critics in, in cricket than, than in football. I could be wrong about that, but it's just a bit of a hunch that I've got. 
Just, just I guess, continuing the theme of like parallels between cricket and Aussie rules, mate. Like, you know, one of the most compelling things about you is you seem to have interests outside the sport that you played, or you know, what your expertise was. You know, you you write, you enjoy music, you podcast, you so you have sort of a bit of breadth of knowledge about stuff. Um, like in cricket, this kind of behaviour would immediately have you ostracised and pegged as a rare bloke, um, uh, of course, for using multi-syllabic words and stuff like that. But um, did, you, did you find the same inside AFL? Was the fact that you're interested in whole, a whole bunch of other things celebrated or were you also met with suspicion there? Yeah, oh, no, it was uh, very much suspicion. It was um, early on. I think I must have worn a pair of corduroy pants or a vintage T-shirt. And, <laughs> and, uh, and someone, someone in the you know, in inverted commas, the football world said he's a bit out there, and that once yeah. once you're sort of branded in football as, as being out there, it really is like like being branded like it like a like a like a cow that's just seared into your yeah. seared into the side of your your buttocks, um, and that's and that is where you shall remain forever because football football is still really really conservative, and probably the best way to kind of explain that is to you know that. That they they think that I'm out there, you know, right. or you know, cert- certainly certainly a bit quirky for um for uh you know for the corduroy pants and and you know, having the odd uh, Rolling Stones album on vinyl, which I wouldn't have thought is particularly out there, but it's still you know sport. I think sport in general is is um is still pretty conservative. Um, it's, you know, it's it's, mo- it's moving. It's sort of it's reshaping itself. Um, but but yeah, I think I think. In the most part, it's still pretty conservative, especially from in, in this in the conversation you're referring to. I, I think there's a bit of a a bit of a shift at the moment that's quite sharp in in um, in a changing idea of, of masculinity and you know the buzzwords at the moment of vulnerability and all of these things. But it, it really is a, it's, it's more of an I look at it as an, an evolving kind of masculinity that's more emotional, and more willing to you know brave to share feelings and shortcomings without losing anything in 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 strength or, or what it means to be a man and I think that's um, without going you know into a sort of the deep abyss of this conversation but it, it I think it's it's sort of challenging a few of the old establishment of um, uh, you know just you know stiff up a lip and you know mm. toughen up that sort of harden up sort of um, uh, psyche that had sort of um, dominated for you know the last hundred years or so. Mm. Yeah, Bob, we, we all know that a lot of Australian cricketers are actually frustrated uh, footballers who desperately wish they could have played AFL or NRL. Um, yeah. Do you, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a fact. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you, uh, we, we see it, you know, when the Australian team's uh, warming up before a test match, they get the sharing outs, an opportunity to show off some yep. of your skills in the Indigenous code. Mm. Does that ever happen in the AFL? Yep. Does anyone get out of stump and do a tea drill? <laughs> is, is there any of that in AFL, or do you just not even think about anything outside the prism of AFL? No, well, so. no, 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 you're actually um, spot on to the to the point where um, I, I know the Bulldogs players still play cricket in their locker room to this day, quite a bit of it, especially over the pre-season when they've just got time to kill. When I, when I first started, um, we had this big warm-up area that's, that's all been changed now, but um, we, we played so much uh, so much indoor cricket there that um, one of our players, Matthew Dent, actually um, hurt his back and, uh, and missed like a, a good two months of training from, you know, the... <laughs> just sort of overstriding in his in his uh, right arm medium pace, and 
and that was his last year. So in some ways, <laughs> cricket, cricket finished, you know, yeah. finished, finished his career. But we, we used to play quite a lot, and a lot of you know, a lot of the guys are really you know really handy. They're, they're damn good cricketers, and you know you could, you could easily see how a few of them could have gone and you know, could have gone a different path. Bob, um, I want to know um, how little do AFL players care about destroying cri- uh, cricket pitches all over Australia and turning the Boxing Day Test match into the worst <laughs> Test match in cricket? Hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I suppose this is where the um, the uh, what is it the um, collegiate vibe does does go sort of south here. Where <laughs> well, let's take you know let's take the MCG for example. We we believe it's ours, and you guys believe it's yours. Now, I suppose technically it is, you know, it's the MCC, and it's it's, it's technically a cricket mm. ground, but that's that's not practically how 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 <laughs> it works. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it, it, it's it's ours, and the, you know, cricket was a way was a way to keep the footballers um, yeah, fit in the in the summer months, not the other way around, as you, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we'll have us all believe. So yeah, this is where the, this is where the battle lines are drawn. I'm afraid. <laughs> um, just on that, Bob, a two pronged question. Uh, Sen, where, where you were uh, recently asked via Twitter, if Ash Barty was an AFL club, what club would she be? Uh, I guess uh, my questions are one: What is it about AFL culture that compels many of its fans to understand every element of life through the prism <laughs> of solemn footy conversation? Uh, and two: If the men's team, a uh, cricket team, was an AFL club, which club would it be and why? Oh dear! Well, you know, you know how they say you know you start drinking from the Kool Aid, and, and I know there's a couple of I know there's a couple of TV stations, a couple of radio stations on the FM dial where they all seem to start to talk like one of those share a certain accent. Yeah. Like, I, I must I must have been at SEN for just the right amount of time because I must have been you know talking about all these other different sports from around the world. My kind of go-to question is yeah okay, okay yeah I understand. I don't really know much about Kevin Durant, but if he was an AFL, <laughs> who would he? Who would he most be like? So I think it's something. Yeah, it's, it's certainly something to consider. I've you know, maybe like a virus that's airborne, and that I've I've sort of inhaled it. What was what was that party's AFL club? By the way, just start you know, asking for a friend. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no idea. No idea. GWS. Yeah. Um, Bob. No, she's far too likable for that. <laughs> Every good AFL club has a strong club song, and it's usually about playing the game as it should be played, or fighting until the final siren sounds, or, or just yep. being mighty and, and proud generally. Yep. Um, all yep. set to a you know a strong four-four marching beat, of course. Do you, are you familiar yeah, with the Australian number. cricket song "Under the Southern Cross"? Uh, I'm not, I, yeah, I know it is that under the Southern Cross, but I, I don't think I could. Uh, I don't think I could give you a couple of bars mm. unless you were going to be so generous as to share. It's it's under the Southern Cross. I stand a sprig of wattle in my hand, a native of my native land, um, Australia. You fucking beauty. So there's a few problematic things within that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just wondering, in 2019, is, is does it deserve a woke makeover? And if so, do you have any suggestions? <laughs> well, yeah, it does. It does sound quite. Um, does it, did Steve War introduce this himself, or is this sort of predate? Steve. It was, I think it was Rod Marsh, but I think it actually draws its heritage from earlier than that. It's quite a, it's a patriotic jingle from the, the late 19th yeah, century, yeah, yeah. I believe. You can, you can just hear the light sort of background jingle of the cork hat with it. I, do, I just don't know with our, uh, with our Zen 
sort of um, smashed avocado and pomegranate salad generation of uh, modern cricketers, whether it's whether it's real, whether it's really going to sing to them, I, I I don't know. It needs to it needs they need a song that's you know featuring some kind of rap artist, perhaps. I just don't know. It's not it's not where I sort of not the field that I work in anymore. I knew, I know that in the in the football uh, um, world, mm. the the music I played in the gym was um, was kind of uh, ignored, sort of um, not even politely. Yeah, the, the young kids don't 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 get the vibes. There's a really good podcast about if you had, like uh, if the Gettysburg Address was given a woke makeover, you know, you wouldn't say like uh, or just just a comms makeover like four yeah. score and seven years ago. You just say eighty seven years. You know what I mean? Yeah, it doesn't yeah. have the same poetry or rhythm, but you just get to the it's point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Attention spans, get it done. Um, Bob, thanks for wandering with us uh, through a bit of woke stuff and uh, you know sneering AFL commentary and doing it as a, as a really good sport. Really appreciate you coming on and thanks for burnishing us with uh, your cricketing ability as well. Oh, boys, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm a big fan, so, um, yeah, you know, play in the V. Ha, ha, ha. Just going to take a quick break in today's show. If you want to do more reading but you find you don't quite have the time, go and check out the app Blinkist. That's B-L-I-N-K-E-S-T. What Blinkist does is it gets you all the key ideas from a whole heap of best-selling non-fiction books in 15 minutes or less in the form of bite-sized text and audio that you consume wherever you are, on the go, at work, you know, waiting to go into bat. Wherever you are, you get all the information in 15 minutes or less. It's an amazing idea. Go and ch- uh, they've actually got an exclusive deal for the listeners of the Great Cricket Podcast. If you go to Blinkist.com forward slash cricket, you get to start a seven-day free trial. You go and check it out. It's a huge library. There's 40 new titles added every month. There's already 3,000 titles on there. People from all over the world are using Blinkist. All the information you need from best-selling non-fiction books in 15 minutes or less. Go and check it out. Blinkist.com forward slash cricket or go and find it in the App Store. Uh, Dave, he goes, just going to clear my throat here uh, for some numbers. Um, obviously, you're only ever as good as your numbers, so let's see how good uh, this guy is. <laughs> uh, 131 tests, 11,953 runs, a higher score of 400 not out, an average of 52.88, 3400s, 4850s, 299 ODIs, 10,405 runs, a higher score of 169, an average of 40.88, 1900s, 6350s. 261 first-class matches, 22,156 runs, a higher score of 501 not out, an average of 51.88, 6500s, 8850s. He's the only player to have ever scored a hundred, a double hundred, a triple hundred, a quadruple hundred, and a quintuple hundred at first-class level. He has the highest score in an innings in test matches ever, and the highest score in an innings in first-class cricket ever. He's known as the Prince, and he's quite simply one of the greatest batsmen to have ever played the game. Today, he joins the Great Cricketer Podcast. Brian Charles Lara, welcome to our show. Thank you. What's, tick- what's tickling that guy on the other side? <laughs> Classic. It was so funny, he goes. Uh, uh, just very comparable stats to my own. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Brian, um, in the interest of tradition, and this won't work at all, but we're going to do it anyway. We're going to start the way we always do. Um, with a bit of a difference, does the term grade cricket mean anything to you? Have you ever played any cricket below first class level in your life? If so, what do you recall of those experiences? <laughs> yeah, I think I played a few games when I was, uh, you know, much younger. Um, first class cricket is, is you know, like we play for our island. So before we get to that stage, we have to play for clubs and stuff like that. So it was good. Um, 
I think it's like Saturday 1 p.m. till you know Sunday 1 p.m. and you have to return again the following weekend. So um, you know sometimes you go back there and the pitch is totally different because you're batting and you're playing away from home. You know, and once it was a batting paradise, next time you know it's it's a bit wet and sticky. So I, I know about that sort of cricket. <laughs> Great, so we can relate, obviously. Um, Brian, uh, just doing some my, reading. Uh, just to let you, let you let you know, my average isn't very good at, at that level. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what it is off the top of your head? Yeah, what is it like? Ninety or something? <laughs> Not off the top of my head, but um, it's 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 been um, you know, I didn't, uh, luckily for me, I don't know. I mean, I know it's great cricket, but luckily for me, and I graduated very quickly and. Um, had a lot of um, had a lot of uh, time away from from great cricket, playing international cricket. But um, of course, <laughs> many stories with six bigger brothers, and I have many many great cricket stories. Uh, um, just just doing some reading about your introduction to cricket at school, Brian. You, you said um, a couple of years later, I met Sir Garfield Sobers for the first time at a schools tournament in Barbados and interacted with him a bit. He had a liking for my style, and that was enough to motivate any youngster. Uh, do you remember what Sir Garfield said to you that made you think, hmm, I can play? Well, well, um, you know, I, I was in Barbados. We played in a school tournament, and um, his his version of it is that, you know, the coach of my school team, who he played with, uh, his name was Brian Davis, um, said to him, you need to come and see this guy bat. And um, Sagafi came, and uh, since then he was just uh, just all positives. And I remember a lot of times when I, you know, others were mentioning my height and my weight, and felt that, you know, I mean, they were they were most likely looking at Greenwich and Richards at the time and saying that, you know, this he wouldn't make it. He doesn't have the, you know, the, that size. But um, Sagafi was always very very positive in his comments. But the first time I actually played any cricket. You, I don't know if you know, but there's primary school. And when you, when you do exams before you go into secondary school, there's a two-month period where you pretty much do nothing in school. That happens roughly about March, April in Trinidad. And the coach looked at me and he handed me the scorebook. He just felt I was just too small. So I scored for two months before I know. I didn't get a kind of an opportunity. I knew how to score cricket before I could play. I just say, hi, here, look at the scorebook, you know. So you got your job. <laughs> Do you remember that coach's name by any chance? <laughs> Mr. Lyon. Mr. Lyon. That's the name. Oh, oh man. Well done. That is unbelievable. Like Brian, part I of the know, water um, boy. Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I want to know when did you when did you first realize that you were, you know, exceptional uh, beyond anyone else? I mean, what, how long did you have to wait before you got your first representative cap? How old were you? Well, I think um, first of all, when you're playing to when you're listening to West Indies cricket, because we couldn't see it at the time in the in the mid seventies, seven eight years old, and you know you, these gigantic and, and great cricketers that we had, you know, Viv, Clive Lloyd as captain, you know, you felt that you know that you know how, how are you going to get into this? But I remembered like every time I played cricket in the garage, I would set up a batting order that that would look like Greenwich, Haynes, Viv Richards, Lara Richardson. I was always fitting myself in the batting order. So I always felt that, you know, hey, one day I'm going to play. But um, you know what? Playing school cricket was one thing, but I think matching up my skills against other West Indian um, youngsters in like the regional West Indies tournament, mm -hmm. you get a better idea of, you know, playing against Jimmy Adams or Carl Hooper from Guyana or, you know, whoever else um, from another island. You get an idea that if you took command of this stage that, you know, what else is there to do? Of course, you have first-class cricket, but this is like on the right path. So I had a couple good 
years in uh, youth cricket, which um, sort of brought my name to the forefront in terms of, you know, our Westernies. On the 19th selection, we did a World Cup in um, Australia in 1988 by mm-hmm. captain the team. But the true pointer, which came pretty much a few days before I actually made the Westernies, was scoring runs against a bowler called Narinja Hirwani, who I think was 16 or 17 years, a few years earlier, and he got 16 wickets in a test match against Westernies, most likely on a dust bowl. But being able to <laughs> being able to score runs, uh, scored 181, 82 against him. Kapil Dev was, I think, the captain of the team. Ravi Shastri was there. That is when I felt that, listen, you know, I, I'm, I'm on the verge. This is, this is going to be really my life. <laughs> are, you, um, are you pretending to not know whether you scored 181 or 182? <laughs> I know it was above 180, but I <laughs> 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 um, Brian, in Australia, certainly, it's protocol for fast bowlers to dramatically overstep in the nets at training, regardless of what <laughs> level we're talking about. I was wondering what it was like for you, you know, as a young player, you know, breaking into the West Indies side against, you know, the likes of Kirtley Ambrose or you know, whoever was there at the time. Did they go <laughs> extra hard at you at training or did they look after you as a young player of promise? What was like a West Indies uh, practice of, session? Uh, first of all, um, you may not uh, appreciate, but my first two years of West Indies cricket, I, I spent carrying the towel. I think I had the most 12 months in my life. <laughs> so what happened as 12 months back in those days is that you get a ball to bowl and you bowl from 9 a.m. at practice till 12 o'clock. And then Clive Lloyd, the manager, says, Pat O'Brien. And then the guys that are bowling to me would be Gus Logie, Clive Lloyd, Jeffrey Dujon. So I would get 15 minutes oh, yeah. while everybody is rushing to get on the bus. So I didn't really get, yeah, I didn't really get to face Malcolm Marshall or, or Ambrose. <laughs> but when I started to play, the most dangerous of all was the bowler that was left out of the squad. So once Patrick Patterson was left out and we were at Adelaide and he picked up a new ball. And mm. he ran in. And then Adelaide is the most beautiful net. There are people watching, you know, there's 50, 100 people watching the, the session. And he is teaming in and he bowled to Desmond Haynes and, he, you know, he survived. And then Richie looked at me and I padded up. And then Carl Hooper padded up. And he bowled for about an hour and a half, just at lightning speed. Mm. And uh, coming to the end of practice, Richie said to Patrick, um, pad up. And we all took a new ball. Carl Hooper took a new ball. Desmond Haynes took a view. I took, even I took a new ball. I said, well, you know, I'm going to bowl from 16. <laughs> well, Patrick put on the pads. He put on the pads and he slowly took them off until the captain is not feeling too well. So, um, <laughs> but he was, he was dangerous. He was dangerous in this. And Ambrose also, when you get him upset, he will just, you know, come in and just pull a few short balls. But most of the times he wasn't too interested. <laughs> Lucky. I, I mean, tell us about your, your debut, Brian. You, you, it was against Pakistan. On your team was guys like Gordon Greenwich, Richie Richardson, Kurtley, Courtney Walsh. And then I just saw Pakistan's bowling attack for your debut was Wazi Makram, Wakar Yunus, Imran Khan, and Abdul Qadir. <laughs> you made 44. Not a bad attack. <laughs> Not bad. Uh, what, do you, what do you remember <laughs> of that experience? And did you get sledged? <laughs> In what language? Maybe... maybe. Exactly. I didn't know if I was sledged. But, um, you know, if I go right to the back end, we were, we had them to hang at the end, you know, coming just around tea time on the fifth day. And Imran Khan said something to the umpire in their language, and then he just pulled the bales and left. And they said, you know, what's the problem? He said, it's too overcast. But um, they were speaking in their language, and they seemed to test much. But it was just um, awesome to get an opportunity to play. Viv Richards did not uh, make that tour. Carly best played the first two test matches and got injured in the nets before the game. So I had an opportunity. And um, 
you know, I got immediately I got accustomed to batting under pressure because we were two, three down uh, very early, and myself and Carl Hoover put on a partnership. And I remember they were bowling so fast that the gully was so deep that we were running a single to gully. <laughs> you know, we were dropping the ball while we roll out to gully. We were having a comfortable single. <laughs> and we weren't we weren't shy of wanting to give the other person the strike. You know, everybody wants to get up with a non-strike event. Um, it's been it's been announced recently, Brian, that Pakistan are going to play their first home test in ten years. Um, you, as Pez said, you played your first ODI there in 1990. You played your last test in Karachi in 2006. Um, I mean, what are your memories of playing in Pakistan? Was it was it an intimidating place? I mean, did you like going there? I didn't mind playing there. I mean, it's not the most social place. You know, you know, you're not gonna you know, you're not gonna walk down George Street in Sydney in a in a in, a, in Lahore. But um, it was. <laughs> It, it's not a bad place to play cricket. Um, you know, I enjoyed it. So what happened in Pakistan most of the time is that you actually find yourself more prepared because there's less to do. So you would double practice. You would do anything that is just to make up time. So, um, you know, I enjoyed it. There was no alcohol. There was nothing to do. If you want to get drinks, you have to, like, declare yourself an alcoholic to get a beer. So, <laughs> so, you have to do that here so as well. So for us, it's... Yeah, so for me, it was a, a period where I felt like I was 110% committed to cricket. But um, I never felt unsafe. I mean, I mean, being oblivious to everything, you know. I mean, if nothing happened, then you're oblivious mm-hmm. to what the possibilities um, were. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it was just so unfortunate because we toured Pakistan on, uh, one year earlier than the Sri Lankan team back in, uh, you know, whatever year that was. 2006, so we might have been there in 2005. And me, the same sort of drive from the same hotel to the same cricket ground. And, um, you know, when you look back on it, you've got to count yourself lucky. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this has nothing to do with the cricketers. It has nothing to do with the Cricket Association. Um, I think ICC over the years have protected the teams. And, and pretty much if, you know, if there's cricket over there, there is tough to, to, as a young person to think, well, you know, I'm going to Pakistan, especially what the possibilities might be. So um, it's great to see that they're having it. And I know that they will put out extra security to ensure. But does a cricketer really want to play under that sort of environment? That's the key thing. Does he really want that sort of environment to to go out there and, and express themselves? You know, if some guys are willing to give it a shot in the sake of, say, Pakistan cricket and trying to see if he can get them back, you know, kudos to them. And that's great. You know, and I've been to Pakistan since then. I worked in a studio. Um, I never felt threatened, but there is always security around. And, you know, I get a, I have a more heightened sense, you know, nowadays of mm. what the possibilities are there. So, mm. you know, um, first test match in 10 years, it's, it's, it's great for Pakistan, but it's, it's always going to be tough. And, it, and it's, you know, that whole stigma is there. Mm. Brian, just back to your own career now. Um, we're going to talk about some of your big hundreds, your daddy hundreds. And I'll start with the 277. <laughs> Uh, against Australia at the SCG, I think it was 93, you know, putting Warren all around the park. It meant so much to you that you named your daughter Sydney. Um, yeah. Similar reason why I named my son North Sydney Oval number two. Um, <laughs> why, why, why was that knock so special to you? Why was? Yeah, what, what, you know, what made that knock so special? Oh, well, it was, it was my first 100, so it was always going to be special. If it was 101, it was, you know, I'd be remembering it to be. Um, what really um, made it, you know, or pushed it up there with, with my best, some of my best. And this was the fact that, you know, um, 
the West Indies, for many, many years, would not have found themselves 1-0 down in a five-test match series against Australia with three test matches to go, and the next one being at the Sydney, uh, at the SCG, because the SCG was always favourable to Australia if it was the spin of Bob Holland or Murray Bennett or even Alan Border. So they would lose a series against the West Indies 4-1, but win that Sydney test match. So I know for a fact that we were in a panic because a 2-0 um, deficit with two test matches to go would put us in a really bad position. And, um, you know, uh, Shane Warne just came from uh, the MCG. I think he picked up nine or 11 wickets against us. And, of, of course, his tail is up. Um, Greg Matthews is there as well. So we felt that um, it was going to be tough. But um, after getting after Australia getting 500-plus, and we were in a position of you know, precarious position, and I got to 100. I came off the field, and Rohan Kanai was there. All my teammates were there. It was a rain break. And everyone was congratulating me on my first 100. But Rohan Kanai, our coach, great West Indian, former West Indian, said, your next inning starts at zero. Set your stalls out. Yep. And that just resonated with me and stuck with me. And, you know, I went back out, and I was scoring all these runs. And then the board, the electronic scoreboard, was just sort of pushing the off from on top of me. And that sort of you know, got kept me going and got very excited. And, you know, and, and I really and truly wanted to go past the Viv Richards 91 in my first 100, but just yes. fell short, you know. But um, that innings would, would always remain with me. And I think in terms of pure batting, getting your first 100, um, you know, it just remained very, very special. As you said, I named my daughter. My daughter's mom said, thank God you didn't name her after Lahore, where you played your first test match. But, um, you know... <laughs> <laughs> it is just going to be. It, it was just a, a, a beautiful and interesting experience as a young man. Um, Brian, m- many of the great cricketers' listeners uh, are fascinated less by on-field exploits than those achieved off-field. Uh, what, what happens off-field is often called the circuit uh, in Australia. Can you paint a picture for the listeners of what a post-match victory celebration looked like? for the West Indies, West Indies when you played, preferably starting from the dressing room, then continuing into the night. Be as detailed as possible and maybe let us know who the greatest West Indian partier was in your career. <laughs> <laughs> well, during my career, you know, um, we didn't win much. I mean, I came and, and pretty much the first five years was great, but then we, you know, the Australians took over. And maybe the most exciting um, series that I played in would have been that uh, 1999 series against Australia, where we started that series in Trinidad, and the first test match was lost, which was our six on a truck because we lost five in South Africa, and the mood was, was it was bad, it was so bad, and I was given a two test match um, uh, probation as captain, which has never happened in the history of West Indies cricket, and I felt that like they just wanted to get rid of me, and we playing against Australia, so we'll give him Trinidad where he's from. It will look bad if we. Um, you know, just drop him after Trinidad. So give him Jamaica. They're going to win in Jamaica, Australia, and then we're going to sack him. And in, a, in Jamaica, Australia um, made 206 days, something around there. And then, you know, we were 36 for four, heading for another disaster. And myself and Jimmy Adams was able to put on like, and we batted all of the second day. We put on 300 and plenty. And, um, we were just in an amazing position and won this game out of nowhere. And the celebration started, the cigars came out, the, you know, the people who were doubters, who were booing, they were all standing around the uh, dressing room. It was a, a historic moment in West Indies cricket to come from that position with such a poor team to win. 
And, you know, the president of the West Indies Cricket Board came down and he said, I suppose I have to ask you how long you want to captain the team for because he was ready to drop the axe on me. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, there's a lot of champagne. Um, I'm almost sure that back <laughs> in the day with Sir Vivian Richards and they, were, they might have been more sympathetic to the opposition. They were winning so much. But um, it's uh, it it was it's, I think you you have guys like um, Chris Gale. Even though he was young, um, these guys love to party. These guys love to express themselves when winning. And and as a team during the ni- late nineties and early part of twenty first century, with spor- uh, sporadic victories, we used to go really really hard. You know, really really hard. So you know, Franklin Rose who was around for a little bit. Um, Ambrose and Walsh really didn't do much um, of that sort of stuff. They, you know, they may have other things organized already. Being, you know, um, experienced guys, and you know, they would have done they would have done their homework and left the parting up to us younger ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, Brian, the um, the Australian teams that you played against obviously played with the utmost integrity uh, in the very <laughs> successful area uh, era for Australian cricket. Um, so I just want to know which one of the uh, of your dismissals do you look back on most fondly? Was it Ian Healy stumping you without the ball in Brisbane and claiming he wasn't sure, or Steve Waugh's catching Barbados that was on the ground for approximately <laughs> six seconds? <laughs> I think it had to be it had to be uh, Ian Healy. Uh, it's my first taste of Test cricket in Australia, mm. and there I was a mile out of my crease trying to dive back hopelessly, um, knowing that you know it's it's, it's not going to happen. And I'm looking at this ball, and I can see that he didn't gather it, and it's just gone a foot away from the stump and heading towards <laughs> slip. Yeah. And, you know, I, I dropped to the ground, and I saw the umpire's hand up. And I know for a fact that it would have been, uh, at that point, I knew it was difficult for the umpire because Healy's body on the ground would have blocked him seeing exactly what happened. Mm. So my only uh, respite would be, pretty much looking at Healy in his face, looking at Mark Taylor in his face and saying, guys, you know, are you going to tell the umpire what happened? Uh, and, um, <laughs> are you going to tell my, the umpire uh, what happened? To my, <laughs> <laughs> to my chagrin, they, they just looked and, uh, and sort of like pretty much take, them way, take themselves away from the area to celebrate and left me sort of um, shocked. Yeah, I was in shock. And uh, <laughs> obviously I, ha- I had to walk off. But that dismissal... Um, it stuck with me for for a very long time. I mean, mm-hmm. even till today, it, it just stuck with me. And um, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's it, <laughs> Steve Wall. Steve Wall was. Um, I was not aware what was. You know, I cut. I asked him if he caught it. He said yes, and I walked. And you know, later <laughs> oh, on, he also what happened. But um, yeah. it was. I think the Ian Healy took took the cake. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of, I guess, as a follow up. I mean, you've you've said that. You know, the relentless sledging by Australian players was something that always motivated you to play better. Um, you're welcome, by the way. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> since then, but since then, Australia's obviously suffered a lot of humiliation over sandpaper and, and I guess the win-at-all-costs culture that, that triggered that indiscretion is under real scrutiny as we're kind of trying to play cricket the right way now. So what are your thoughts on this new, gentler version of Australia that we're seeing at the moment under Tim Payne and so on? Well, I like to actually love the the, the um, aggressive Australia. Um, you know, not the necessarily playing unfair cricket, but you know, um, Steve Waugh having a go, or Craig McDermott, uh, Glenn McGrath, that toughed me up. I, you know, even though some some ended up in, you know, um, the match referees um, 
uh, a hand, it, it, you know, sometimes you wish it didn't because, you know, that sort of, that aggressiveness on the field, as long as, you know, somebody wasn't over, um, you know, insulting or something like that. Uh, I, I think I prefer the more aggressive Australians. And, and as you said, it fired me up as an individual. Um, but if, uh, if the Australian authorities feel that the culture needs to change and, uh, you know, play a little bit more um, with that sportsman-like uh, behavior, well, so be it. But for me, it was great just playing cricket against Glenn McCraw, uh, Shane Warne, Steve Waugh. They were never short of words. You know, uh, Mark, Mark Waugh, never, never short of words. But um, I'm not being boastful, but I thought, I thought that they learned their lessons very early and they sort of left me alone and attacked a lot of the younger West Indians in the crowd. You know, and I wish they aimed a little bit more at me. You know, it sort of fired me up. Mm. Brian, got, got a question in from a fan, and by fan I mean a journalist, and I don't know what I'm about to ask you, but I'm just going to do it anyway. Um, why couldn't you be found on the morning of day three of the 2003 Barbados Test versus Australia and came out to bat at number eight? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, you want to, uh, I suppose you heard the same things, right? I, I, I genuinely, the story, the I genuinely I haven't heard. heard. <laughs> the stories I heard, first of all, I have to give you the stories that I heard. I heard that I was out partying so hard that I couldn't get up for two days. Oh, so the yes. test match started, yeah, the test match started, and <laughs> I was uh, out at Harbour Light, one of those nightclubs. Um, someone mm-hmm. saw me at 5, 6 o'clock in the morning, and that's why Brian could only surface, um, you know, two days later. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I woke up after the first day, and I had chicken pox. And I came downstairs, and obviously the manager uh, got the doctor, and the doctor said, oh, this is the most contagious uh, period, so you have to, you know, the test match is literally over for you. Um, I think Australia batted first. I'm not sure exactly, you know, I think Australia batted first, and by the time I got to, um, you know, trying to save the match that I, you know, I had to walk out there pretty much still very sick uh, under a helmet with chicken pox and um, bat. We, I mean, we still didn't save the test match, but that is the fact. This is not, don't, please don't feel that this is being made up. This is oh, the fact. I got a <laughs> chicken pox. I was, I was, no, I got a number eight. I, I must have gotten 12. I'm not sure exactly what I got, but it definitely <laughs> didn't save the test match. You know, so, um, yeah, that was, that was actually the truth, uh, and uh, so be it, you know. And I don't even know. I mean, it's something that I forgot. They surprised me that it could have been like the third day. We might have batted. They might have batted. We might have batted already on the first inning. And you know, the the fourth innings of the of the game is what we were trying to save. Or if we were being beaten two to one, the third innings of the game. So um, yeah, it was unfortunate. But I mean, um, there's another big incident where you know, um, Jimmy Adams got. Uh, cut on his finger on a plane and we were heading to South Africa and the news came out that Jimmy Adams stopped Franklin Rose from um, knifing Brian Lara. That still is still being released today. And, you know, my, my, the person sitting next to me, Dinanat Ramnarai, woke me up after about seven hours on the fly and he said, you know, you don't even can't believe what happened. I said, what? He said, Jimmy Adams was, you know, pushing a knife through. That day, back in those days, we had not plastic knives, normal knives. He's pushing this, this um, knife through bread and stuck it in his hand. So I went across, had a look. He was all bandaged up. And, um, yeah, the story just suddenly became very <laughs> sensational. And, um, you know, but nobody actually, nobody actually went to dispel the story. It was surprising. 
Mm. You know, uh, you know, it was just very quietly. And if you ask a, a Jamaican today, you say, "Yeah, man, Franklin Rose wanted to knife your hair, brother." <laughs> uh, madness, madness. That's what Trump's talking about with the fake news and the Facebook <laughs> algorithms. Um, Brian, throughout the decades, and we touched on it, the Windy's obviously known for producing an endless procession of fast bowlers, all physically imposing. You know, Kurtley Ambrose and Courtney Walsh, these guys were over two metres tall and you know, leveraged their height and long levers to great effect. Did you first realise something was wrong with West Indian cricket when Suleiman Ben burst on the scene bowling offies? <laughs> <laughs> and you're saying Bull's running 100 metres I know what's going on with this guy <laughs> but Suleiman Ben is a big guy but he looks a little bit too tall and, and crooked you know he, he seems like spin is the best he can do he moves at 5 miles an hour so I, I doubt he could have really sling it down mm. but, um, what, what, what about yeah, West Indian cricket right now just in general I mean where where is it at I just think it's at that position where we're going to have these um, you know Periods, short periods where we, we're going to do well. I don't think, you know, I'm happy to see, first of all, Phil Simmons back. I think, you know, looking at, um, you know, how he handles this thing. Yeah, and as you know, a coach, most of the times you speak to some of the more, more successful coaches, you would, you, they would more talk about man management than actual coaching. And I think that he has that skill as a, a, a good man manager. So I'm happy to see him back. But I want to know what is the plan, what is the foundation that's going to be laid for success. So you have an a English team or an Australian team or an Indian team. And what they have is they've laid foundation above foundation above foundation, which means that they have places that they will never go back playing. They will never play at this level again. They would always be at this optimum level. doesn't mean that they're going to win every match, but they have laid a foundation. What we are doing is that we are just sort of doing amazing um, performances once, and then we go three steps backwards. And so there is no foundation. The, the talent is there, but, and they're going to express themselves on one or two occasions. But majority of the time, if you don't have a good foundation, a good plan, you're always going to be beaten in the long run. And I want to know what is the plan now to get mm-hmm. our cricket up to a certain standard before. You know, so, so it takes you back to 1993 where we, we just won that series 2-1. We were in at St. Sydney. We spoke about when I got the double 100. The West Indies team back in those days was the best team in the world. So we did not know how to lose. We knew how to win. And we got ourselves out of that position to win. This present West Indies team knows how to lose. So if we have a shock victory or we have two great victories, you just feel that things are going to be, you know, back to normal, you know, the next very next game. The only way to get rid of that is having a foundation where you know these guys are playing good cricket. Nice one. Brian, thanks so much. You've been extremely generous with your time for this interview. And can we just say to our fans listening to this, uh, Brian Lara is having an evening uh, at the Palais Theatre on November 28th, Thursday, November 28th. A great night out for all cricket lovers if they can get around it. Um, I'm told that Brian has uh, a thousand more stories to tell here as well. And I, do, I am just on the ticket side at the moment, and I see that um, one of the ticket packages is one called Party with the Prince VIP package. Uh, <laughs> definitely want to know what that is. Um, but, yeah, look, those tickets are going fast. Palais Theatre, November 28, Brian Lara. Um, anything you want to say about that night, Brian, by the way? I think it's going to be an awesome night. It's, um, it's a different sort of uh, approach to an evening that I've had in the past. I've, I've sat down and had dinner, uh, you know, with groups, you know, feature speaker. But this is something where you're at the theater. And um, 
I pretty much went to John Travolta last Sunday. Not not Sunday, just gone. Sunday before, just to get a feel for you know what actually takes place at the Palais, and it was just awesome. The atmosphere. Hmm. So I'm hoping that you know you have we have a very good crowd. Um, we have some great videos, uh, a great opening to show, and um, it's going to be a fun evening. And we're actually trying to also have a sort of a West Indian culture spin to it. So. Um, yeah. People come out. It's a Sunday. I think it's it's very affordable, and we're gonna have a great time, you know. And um, the mm. party with the the party afterwards, you know, uh, you know, I've, I've got an early flight to Sydney, but I think I can I can handle a few things, you know. Um, I, I've done it before. Party to party to airport. I've done that before. <laughs> Wayne's got every half out of Sydney, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, Brian. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the great Australian Rig 11, normal words, campaign has been run and done. We've finalised who will be appearing on some custom smugglers, which is a partnership collaboration between Budgie Smuggler and the great cricketer. We'll be announcing that down the track. A couple of vouchers to announce as well, $50 vouchers for Callum Thatcher, who suggested Jeff Thompson and Dame Jane with a Y, uh, who I believe we upset a few months ago with some ill-advised commentary around New Zealand after their World Cup loss. Uh, Ty, whatever you want to call it. Apologies again, Dame. Uh, And Adam Zampa was a suggestion there. Um, So we're moving on to hashtag my smuggling remake comp. Mm. This is obviously where we'd like people to pose in Budgie Smugglers remaking a famous moment off the internet or life, frankly, Mm -hmm. Uh, and just hashtag it with my smuggling remake. Gentlemen, anything off the top of your head? Uh, I'd like to see a smuggling remake of a press conference. Um, any press conference, really, but mm. the one that comes to mind is probably when Mark Warren and Shane Warren had to front the jury. Oh, yeah, John that's the bookie. a good one. John that's the a good one. Mm. Been a while since I've seen any kind of archive news footage of that. I'd like Wasn't to see that it remade. Not, that was just an honest mistake. Mate, it could yeah. happen to any of us. Wasn't the bookie... They were just giving a bookie some... Uh, some advice about a pitch. It wasn't. Yeah, it was weather untoward. information, mate. He just mm. checked the bomb and he went, oh, it's probably going to rain yeah. today. Mm. It was It was nothing untoward. Mm. No. Yeah. Publicly, Sally Malik information. brought him into the room and said, we need you to bowl outside like someone. Warren said, no. Yeah, not going to do that. He said no. Mm. So I don't know what the problem is. Like yeah. they were, they were totally fine. They weren't, you know. Mm. Healy missed a stumping last ball of the day, and they picked someone. All don't worry good. About it. I'm going to worry about that. Mm. Worry about that. What, what do you have any ideas? Yeah, my, I was thinking. Um, you know when Australia won the Ashes in two thousand? What was the four nil sign thing? It was uh, seventeen. Yeah. yeah, seventeen. Yeah, then after that. It was like um, the Australian players were in Sydney. It was like the Marshes and Jackson Bird. They were photographed like smoking. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah, from like a from a distance. Enjoying a cigarette. Enjoying a cigarette. <laughs> Enjoying a cigarette. And I would I want to see that recreated. Yeah. But like mm. the the photo has to be like kind of like insidious in in its in its um it has to be heavily pixelated. Yeah. And it's like, oh, look what they look look at these naughty boys yeah. doing. Yeah. Mm. And that'd be yeah, so a big back, back circle spread. around the hand holding the cigarette yeah. like yeah. Daily Telegraph Red style. circle. Yeah. That's what I want. Recreate that. Nice. I'd like to see Prince Andrew's interview. <laughs> it's very quick after the original. I want to remake immediately. Yeah, we'll remake yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. it's like the Sonic movie. So yeah, um, yeah. Prince Andrew. Stop sweating. Uh, he doesn't sweat. He had too he, much adrenaline one time. The Falklands yeah, when he didn't get shot in the Falklands. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah those Falklands, mate. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that, look, there are a couple of ideas for you guys. Uh, anyone else has uh, has other things that they'd like to remake? You know, please feel free to go and do that. Hashtag my smuggling remake comp. That's by Budgie Smuggler. BudgieSmuggler.com.au. Great friends. 
Hashtag AskTGC. We just got word actually from our tour manager uh, in between when I said that uh, tickets were still available and now uh, that uh, we have sold out Brisbane. Uh, but the word is that they are opening up more tickets at the uh, Princess Theatre in Brisbane. More tickets are available now. They're opening a different section of the uh, other venue uh, to facilitate more people to come along to the show. It's great news. That's going to be that's going to be a great crowd there. Good crowd there. Jason Gillespie, the boys, mm. the bands back together. Mm. How good is Brisbane? Mm. Anything goes in Brisbane. Anything yeah. goes in Brisbane. It's loose, wild. Mm. Like coming from the, uh, yeah, the, the, the the sort of confines of lockout laws in mm. Australia. Do you remember we went there a couple of years ago yes. and we were like... and It, it was, was after the the Brisbane yeah, uh, Premier Cricket yeah. Awards and we went there That's and it just right. felt hostile. Yeah. In a good way. In a f- yeah. in like anything can happen kind of way. Like some, a, I, 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 we yeah. walked into a pub and yeah. someone just walked up to me. As soon as the first person I saw upon walking into yeah. the pub and he just went up to my face and did like the masturbation yeah. sign and then threw it in my face. Yeah. That was a nice way to be introduced to a pub. Yeah. And I was behind you and a guy goes, nice suit, because we had been wearing suits for yeah. the occasion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I didn't know what to do with that information. It was just, it was just some, something was going to happen that night. And something <laughs> we did ran up the stairs. <laughs> Get me in here. <laughs> Brisbane. We're going to be there Thursday. It's good. Anyway, tickets are still available. Greatcricketer.club for all your tickets. Uh, come along, bring some friends, and uh, yeah, get, get round us, and we will in turn get round you. Pez, ask TGC. Ask TGC. This one comes in from Eamon uh, Gerard. Thank you for the question, Eamon. Just take a um, take a breath, gentlemen, and make a cup of tea uh, for this. But uh, hashtag ask TGC, right, Eamon? I will preface this question, manifesto, with an acknowledgement that I understand it may not be appropriate for broadcasting as we wouldn't want to upset the quiet grade cricketers of Australia. Nonetheless, your contemplation and educated response would be much appreciated. Pez's final comments in today's episode, that's last week, regarding the right-wing peddled myth of political correctness really spoke to me. As a raging lunatic inner-city lefty, originally from rural Victoria, my radical agenda includes advocating for evidence-based policies such as immediate action to address a climate emergency, appropriate funding for mental health services and picking Joe Burns to open the batting. Hashtag feel the burn. Also hashtag feel the burn. B-E-R-N. Uh, each day I find myself turning to TJC for my dose of echo chamber left-wing politics hidden behind the facade of quasi-cricket related humour. Unfortunately, the increasingly soft core centre-right love-ins at the ABC and The Guardian don't quite hit my left-wing KPIs quite like they used to. TJC fills a void that's been empty since my old man threw out my copy of Karl Marx's Dust Capital and I forgot to update my change of address with Jacobin Magazine and thus stopped receiving my quarterly essays on why Joe Biden is actually a chump or champ. Pez's comments have left me pondering what cricket would look like in an alternative reality, at brackets, a socialist paradise, one in which the universal four-day working week was a reality and Saturdays weren't spent getting horrifically sunburned or constantly dragging covers on and off the ground. Instead, they would be idled away playing cricket in a balanced climate with and against a bunch of blokes who weren't either ground down by the to the bone by neoliberal agendas or faux-alpha corporate assholes whose parents spent 35k a year on their education, yet they still playing third grade like the rest of us. The truth is, people don't have time for cricket clubs anymore. After working a 50-hour week, drowning in productivity targets, who the fuck can be bothered helping out with their under-12s on Saturday morning, committing time and labour to making a wholesome afternoon tea, or driving 45 minutes through traffic on a Friday night to take covers off? Only for the game to be washed out anyway because the corner of the square on a suburban ground is a little bit sticky and everyone's dying to get all the shit done they could get done during the week. 
If my socialist dreams were realized, would this also make us better cricketers at all levels? I imagine happier, more mindful people, and thus better performances. Rivers of runs would flow across the country, reminiscent of when the Murray-Darling actually had water in it. Community sporting clubs would thrive and prosper, with more time for volunteers to actually give a shit. Consequently, it's clear that the two people most to blame for the demise of public policy, the destruction of the environment, and the underwhelming performances of park-grade state and international cricketers across this sunburnt land are Rodney Hogg and Andrew Bolt. The great unknown in this socialist reality is what would this mean for TGC? Would the quiet-grade cricketers still seek out the dark realist noir of TGC if they were all the more satisfied and content with their existence? Or a cricketer's masochist and self-deprecating by nature? Would no amount of success actually drive them towards positivism? Would, what would an alpha look like in this world, and how could TGC characterise them in a marketable way to create content? Would the alpha even exist? Why is TGC advocating for a Bernie Sanders-style revolution if it could potentially lead to the possible demise of TGC? Or is that the end game TGC is looking for, to make themselves redundant? In this case, is TGC the self-sacrificing hero we need in these modern times? Thoughts. What? Hmm. Um, yeah, uh, Eamon, good question. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's right in terms of like, who it has time? It was like time. 68 questions there. Yeah, I mean, who, who has time? Greg? I mean, that's that's something we spoke about loads on this podcast. Four-day working week, I think people more people play cricket. Because if, if you have three days off, you can mm. probably sacrifice one of those to play cricket, maybe. So maybe more people would play that way. But at the same mm. time, yeah, like... You so know he's how asking us to remove the the highest tiers of cricket, and it's just this kind of communist general flattening of all forms of cricket. I think mm. he's saying that like there's an incompatibility between the neoliberal capitalist society we live in, which you know requires fifty to seventy hour working weeks, mm. leaves you with no energy, and playing grade cricket, which is pretty much as the ombudsman recently came out and said, mm. is a part time job yeah. in terms of working hours. They, they, they are fundamentally incompatible. What would grade cricket look like in a socialist paradise where you had maybe a four day working week, a bit more time to be a club volunteer and just generally be happier doing it? That's his question. It would look like what it looked like in the sixties and seventies. Mm. Which yeah, was fucking village. Yeah. <laughs> I mean I, I fear for cricket if this socialist reality mm-hmm. occurred. I mean, I, I don't think the rivers of runs would necessarily flow. It's certainly not good well, runs. I mean, the they're thing. not the right kind of runs That's that right. we're looking for. That's right. And climate change would actually make the decks harder to bat on. Yeah. You know, if we fix the environment and the greens were, the, sorry, the, the wickets were green, mm. green tops, I, I worry about what my future grandchildren mm. would be like, you know, on a, on a well, green top. Well, he's saying top. if you sorted out the climate, you know, like it had renewable energy policies, etc., you actually, the, the wickets might stay okay rather than being the green tops, they're going to be calm. Mm. You know, under you know the, the, you know current environmental policies. I mean, I think I think the problem with the socialist paradise of cricket is that like cricket is a Tory game, really. Yeah. Like it's a very Tory game. Like it's a, aggressively. It, it rewards like avaricious hoarding of capital. Yeah. You know, aka runs and wickets mm. for the self. You, know, you get runs for yourself, like you get money for yourself. Mm. Well, sandpaper um, was the perfect example of it. You know, top down culture, mm. win at all costs, driven from the top, mm. um, trickle down. You know, we had CA executives flogging the rights for billion dollars to put it behind a paywall. Exactly. Um, ensuring you know the proletariat couldn't watch cricket. Mm. I mean that is aggression. Mm. Mm. The game is fundamentally selfish. You know, mm. like, it makes no apologies for being so. Much like you know the the capitalist approach. You know, like and and that selfishness in turn burnishes the state economy, mm. which is runs. You know, <laughs> and wickets. You know, in your team and like like you know populist demagogues rule the world today. Trump. At same time, we're being told that participation rates in cricket have never been better. Although mm. we do know in reality, you mm. know, those are being fudged as well. Exactly. Why is Sarif Ganguly calling himself Dada? He wants to be the father you know, of this economy. Why 
don't don't we want with global warming for it to get a bit hotter so the wickets get a bit flatter? Like not not as like batsmen. Yeah, as batsmen. Yeah, mm. but then they might spin. Well, a bit I think that's as well. why Trump pulled out of the Paris Accord. Mm. Yeah, because America's about to make an entry into cricket ahead of yeah. the Olympics, much like China. But also, Israel Folau says the bushfires are happening because of gay marriage. So well, that's just a two, fact. There are two sides to the fact. argument. Yeah. If Saraf Ganguly is Donald Trump, is Simon Kadich Bernie Sanders? <laughs> I'd love to go to a Kadich rally. Mm. Oh, yeah. Fuck, that would be good, wouldn't it? Amazing. If we started the Kadich chant, one of the live Sydney live shows, <laughs> <laughs> surprisingly no. didn't take off. No one took it off. Uh, <laughs> uh, Shaw Duffy. Guys, I've just listened to the episode of your podcast talking about rare dismissals. Despite being a nearly 50-year-old man, I'm now sitting in the corner of the room in the fetal position, rocking back and forward, whimpering uncontrollably while reliving a dismissal more than two decades ago. In my late 20s, I decided to come out of retirement and play the one more season that was going to satisfy all the failings and frustrations of my earlier grade career. It made sense at the time, but of course, I now clearly see the folly of that decision. I had bought a new stick for the season. But as was the case then, it took an eternity to oil, oil and knock it in and wasn't ready for the first game. So I used a stick from the team kit, a Slazenger V100, as I recall. Anyway, I opened the batting, was feeling good and played a forward with a regulation defensive shot only to hear the piercing sound of the bat crack and turned around to see a chunk of wood had snapped off the bottom of the bat and had fallen backwards and hit the stumps. The umpire had his finger raised and I was out hit wicket for a duck in the comeback game. You smoke of a rare dismissal being one that conjures laughing and whooping and hollering from the opposition. It was like you were describing that dismissal from 20 years ago. After the day's play, I got a bad luck mate from the opposition captain, which of course lacked any sincerity, and he was trying not to smoke. I thought I'd put it behind me, but clearly I haven't. Is a comeback for a season of village vets cricket the answer? Sean. It's one of the great mind tricks in cricket that like you can overcome all of the misery and pain the game has like delivered to you with one final innings like yeah. as though the last thing you do in cricket therefore overrides everything else that's come before it. it's a trick it might not only a trick because it doesn't erase the things that have happened before mm, but also you probably won't do well either i think that this, this is just what this guy gets he gets what he deserves for using a bat from the team kit mm. i mean no bat in the team kit Firstly, you don't have any knowledge of the history of that bat. You need history knowledge. You need to know. Yeah. You need to know the history of yeah. the bat. You know what it, the handle might be a bit clicky. Yeah. Maybe the meat's a bit shit. Mm-hmm. It's like getting a dog from the pound. Mm-hmm. You don't know the backstory of that dog. I mean, I'm against puppy farming. Obviously, I don't need, think I need to say that. But you know, I'm just saying. You know, I don't know where that dog's been. Why? Why did he end up in a pound? What did he do? What's his backstory? <laughs> It's a good question. I I have to just make a confession that um, as you were talking just then, um, I just looked at Twitter. It was a Colin Kaepernick thing. And so I blacked out and I came back to what you were saying. And I was like, how's, why are we talking about dogs in pounds? (laughs) (laughs) But I like it. How's he got into puppy farming in like 13 (laughs) seconds of conversation? Very easily. Yeah. Uh, Well, we've obviously given like Sean Vietnam flashbacks there of just like, we were discussing dismissals, whooping and hollering and stuff. And, uh, and uh, yeah, and he had to listen to that. So we, I apologise, Sean, for, for talking through some tough dismissals the other week. Rightfully so. Uh, this one comes from Ben. Chaps, it's long been established that team selection is based on factors other than ability. One's rig, salad, on-field chat, etc. May I respectively suggest a new factor for the modern era is one's activeness on the team's club WhatsApp group. These active contributors can take a couple of forms. Firstly, there's the banter king. Adept in posting in a hilarious meme slash gif 
to kickstart or provide a telling contribution to an ongoing roasting of a fellow group member. Crying faces abound whenever this group member brings the banter, as he frequently elects to do. Secondly, there is the motivator, primed for the Friday night message of such length that one is obliged to scroll down several times in order to take it all in. This missive will essentially encourage those in the group to fucking give it to those wankers tomorrow, uh, complete with a number of pugilistic emojis such as the boxing glove. I would argue that in our phone-obsessed society where we are far more comfortable with written rather than face-to-face communication, both such group contributors make themselves as indispensable as those who regale their teammates with tales of their sexual exploits on game day or possess an excellent rig regardless of their commonly below-par on-field contributions. Would appreciate your thoughts on this, Ben. I agree with Ben. The, yeah. the digital age is here. Like, yeah. not, not, like people are doing team talks on WhatsApp now, you know? Yeah. And like TED Talks? They're, they're doing TED Talks. They're doing TED Talks on WhatsApp now. They're doing team talks on WhatsApp. I mean... Are they? I, like video team talks? <laughs> no, 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 just just through emojis. Oh, I thought you were like, people are videoing team talks and sharing them on WhatsApp. Sharing them around, yeah. Mm. Um, no, I think like... You know, group chats, that there is there is a dynamic in every group chat. And if you receive a message from someone who is known to have good chat on the group text, you're going to open that message. But someone who's a bit like, oh, I don't like this guy's chat. Yeah. You, you know, there is there is a ranking system of WhatsApp, is what I'm mm. saying, for a group for a group message. Yeah. I think cricket has to embrace it, you know? I mean, yeah. what's for sure, regardless of what sort of age we're living is, everyone's always trying to burnish their social capital. Yeah. Uh, mm. You know, through whatever means necessary. And the internet's having a democratising effect on great cricket. Uh, the virtual world becomes as important, if not more, than the physical world. You know, bring a good meme game, good gift game. You're bringing value, you know. Is WhatsApp the new stretching circle? And, of mm. course, so the extension of this is, you know, can you make a second life uh, video game? Internet great life. Cricket. We've yeah. talked about this. SimCity. You know, like, if you mm-hmm. made a great cricket video game, people would buy it, you know. It'd be like SimCity, but for grade cricket. Mm. How do you work your way through grade cricket? How do you accrue social capital? Mm. How do you perform in the tubs? How do you work in the stretching circle? Mm-hmm. People would buy the shit out of that. Mm. I think because of the digital age, like anyone who does have that, that extrovert personality actually excels more so because no one else wants to talk to each other. No one looks yeah. each other in the eye. Yeah. So it's a real chance for the, yeah. I, I, Esports for great cricket. I, I retired before WhatsApp was actually a thing. Right. And from cricket. Yeah. Um, so I'm not <laughs> yeah. familiar with, I mean, obviously we're in a WhatsApp group and I'm in many, probably too many WhatsApp yeah. groups um, according to the, my screen time per week, which continues to rise exponentially. Yeah. But I remember like, it was back in the day it was work, people sending emails from work email signal like i always enjoyed getting on a chain email. i thought it was kind of alpha and you'd always be like it was always interesting to someone would be say like we're gonna fucking get up them this week lads yeah. Yeah. you know like <laughs> senior director at deloitte or you know yeah. a senior investment banker at kpmg <laughs> yeah. and yeah. just you know yeah, yeah yeah there's always some silly little message in the email like yeah. you know you must not use disclose or act on this message. like yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah if yeah. this has been sent to you <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, I, like I, that. Like that. I like that. I miss that. I miss emails. I thought there was something off about getting yeah an email from a work some, from someone's work email, but uh, being twenty, just like fuck, this guy's got a job. Yeah, fuck, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Guy plays cricket and a job. Yeah, and the you've got like does exist. You've got like Ian Higgins sixty nine at hotmail.com, <laughs> which is still your address. As you know, that's yeah, that's you, know, you just get out my personal email there. I uh, don't appreciate that. Uh, any other thoughts? Oh no, I mean I think in, embrace a digital and virtual world. Nice. In relation to this, and we may not even need to play cricket physically anyway. We can just all just do it through VR screens and stuff like that. Nice. That's the Great Cricketer Podcast this week. We'll see you next week. Nice.